From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. PTSD, or post-traumatic stress disorder, is a frightening, sometimes debilitating condition that sometimes follows violent or threatening events, including those on the battlefield. On this special Veterans Day edition of Mayo Clinic Radio, we have the latest on diagnosing and treating PTSD. Also on the program, High Tech has taken artificial limbs to a whole new level. Iraq War Vet Dan Metzdorf hasn't let the loss of his leg slow him down. Now, I was the first above-the-knee amputee to stay on active duty, but that's a win for everyone. That's a win for the Army. That's a win for my doctors, for my prosthetists. That's not me. I was so proud to just be a part of it, and it was a lot of fun. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to a special Veterans Day edition of Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Flashbacks, nightmares, severe anxiety, uncontrollable thoughts about an event. These are just some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. PTSD is deeply tied to the human fight-or-flight reaction that occurs during a threatening situation. It's probably been with us for millennia, since the beginning, yeah. since we are cavemen, Tom. Yeah. But, yeah, but only recently has it been recognized and treated as a true mental health problem. That largely because of soldiers returning from combat who continued to relive traumatic events that they'd experienced during war. As we've learned more and more about PTSD, diagnosis and treatment expanded beyond the battlefield experiences. PTSD can also occur after physical assault, rape, loss of your home due to a storm or a flood, and a host of other traumatic events. Now, it's also thought that genetics and brain chemicals may also play a role. Here to talk about PTSD, what it is and how it's treated, is Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Craig Sawchuk. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Sawchuk. Great to have you here. Great. Thank you for having me here as well. Thank you, Dr. Sawchuk. So uh, before we talk about PTSD, it's always... uh, People are always a little confused about the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist. All how, right. do you, how do you tell the difference? Well, what beyond the, difference? beyond the letters uh, at the end of our name, uh, a psychologist um, is uh, does not prescribe medications. Our, our focus as a psychologist is to uh, understand the research and provide behavioral therapy. So no prescription of medications, just providing behavioral therapy for folks. So it's talk therapy without medication. Yes, and and, that, and that's true, and it, and it goes beyond just talk therapy, and I think that that's a, an important part to pay attention to when we talk about evidence-based treatments. While talking is part of what we do, a lot of behavioral therapy is about doing, and hopefully we'll get into talking about that a little bit further today. The soldiers that are returning with this, um, it's it's... I guess you could say it's something new, but I would suppose it's probably not. The men that were in World War II and and any war would have to have suffered from this. Is it just we didn't know what to call it? I think so, and and when you actually look at uh, previous accounts, and even predating World War One and Two, um, there's lots of accounts of people experiencing stress-related reactions and great descriptions of the symptoms that people were, were experiencing. We just didn't label it as such back then. Um, earlier through World War One and World War Two, that's where you started to get these descriptions of battle fatigue and shell shock. And it wasn't until about the 1980s that the American Psychiatric Association 
developing the diagnostic and statistical manual um, really came up with a more conformed diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And even within our own field, um, over the years, over the last 20, 30 years, have seen changes in the uh, defining that diagnosis over time. And how has that helped you, and how has that helped the public, being able to put a, put a name on it? Putting a name on it is important uh, because I think one of the big things uh, that we have to pay attention to, and we see this in the military and civilian populations, is that very good people are exposed to very bad things all the time. Um, if we look at, at the data, 50 to 75 percent of civilians alone will be exposed to at least one traumatic event in their lifetime. Um, in military, it's that percentage is, is much higher. Um, really? but Say that again. 50 to 75 percent of, civ- of civilians will be exposed to an extremely traumatic event, a serious traumatic event during their lifetime. Exactly. At least one time. Wow. But the vast majority of people do not go on to struggle and, and suffer. And hence the reason why being able to better identify what does that group of people look like? How does that better help us identify them and hopefully help them to identify them earlier on and get them plugged into evidence-based treatment earlier on? One of the things that you would hear about uh, the World War II soldiers that came back is that they never talked about it. Mm -hmm. Is that part of what's different about PTSD is that you're learning maybe you do need to talk about it? Very much so. And and you'll see that people will uh, react to experiences and extreme experiences in a different way. I mean, you you take a, um, a, a troop, may all go through the exact same experience, but respond to it in a very different way. And for some people, simply not talking about it, shutting it down, for them, maybe an adaptive way of coping. I think it's being able to identify those people that struggle more um, from that experience. And for some people, it is more of a shutdown type of mode that actually leads to ongoing problems, whether it be problems physiologically with them or development of other conditions in addition to PTSD, such as depression. Talk about the usual symptoms. I'm sure they're, they're quite varied. Yes, they, they, they are varied, but um, as we have looked at people over time and, and what makes a diagnosis a diagnosis, there are certain clusters of symptoms that seemingly fall together. And many of the symptoms uh, that you mentioned right out of the gate of the interview today um, really covers that. Um, one is that we think of uh, the experience of distressing but intrusive thoughts, and this can come in the form of flashbacks, um, nightmares, these re-experiencing types of symptoms. Sometimes that experience is also can be more of a numbing, it's almost like a shutting down type of experience. There's also uh, the tendency to avoid triggers or reminders of the trauma. And for some people, this can be uh, situations. Um, these could be visual things. These could be auditory things as well, too. The other changes uh, that can happen are changes emotionally or cognitively. So this is where you may get the irritability, uh, the depression, more the fear-based responding, but then also difficulties with things like concentration. Uh, and then finally, you can get some uh, changes in their physiology. And this is where you can experience sleep disruption, um, but also in, including uh, just kind of that hypervigilance, the being revved up, chronically revved up. And this can lead actually uh, to people um, taking uh, medications or substances to try to mute some of those symptoms. I know of someone who served two tours, and he said, I don't think I'll ever be able to go to a mall again mm-hmm. or the state fair, any place, a football game where there's large amounts of people. And on the surface, you think, well, then you don't go to the mall. Not a big deal. But how do you start to work around those things? Yeah, once again, it depends upon the individual because for, there, for some people, they can continue to live a good and happy and meaningful life. 
They just with, don't go to the mall. Yeah, they just don't go to the mall. And, <laughs> and to some degree, we wouldn't blame some of those folks for doing that. Uh, but when it really does change their ability to tolerate getting into situations that, in fact, maybe are important for them or ways that, that they need to be able to live their life, like simply going to the grocery store and being able to get food seems very simple you know, for many folks and for some of the combat vets. Um, prior to, to being enlisted in service, they never even thought about it. They just, if they needed something, they went to the store. Um, now, because of uh, some people returning and those who continue to struggle, when it's hard to tolerate getting into these crowded, busy situations because of their reactivity, uh, then that can really get in the way of their functioning. Now, I think a, a key thing is the avoidance of these triggers really makes sense. People don't avoid these things because it makes them feel good. They do them because it feels less bad. So if they're having intrusive worries about something bad happening, should they be in a crowd and they don't go into a crowd, then something bad doesn't happen. The intensity of the physical reactivity, maybe the anticipation of going out may create significant anxiety or panic attacks. And by not going, they're not experiencing panic attacks. Again, it makes sense for a lot of folks why they avoid these triggers, but very much so it actually very quickly becomes part of the problem. Tell us about the diagnostic criteria, how someone knows if they have this. And I suspect, like most uh, mental illnesses, there are certain criteria that the patient has to have or you have to discover in, in talking with the with the patient that will allow you to make that diagnosis. Right. And indeed, and that gets back to an earlier point that that diagnostic criteria as it currently stands has morphed as time has gone along. Um, but it does require exposure to an event that required um, either a significant injury or threat of death or sexual violation. Um, that can happen in person, uh, so it can happen to you, or it can happen to somebody that's close to you, somebody who's meaningful to you. So there's this, over time, vicarious acquisition of trauma that people need to struggle um, with the impairments and many of the symptoms that we talked about earlier on with the intrusive thinking, the avoidance, the mood changes for over a month because it's not uncommon when people are exposed to these traumatic triggers um, that there may be a period where they're struggling with these symptoms, but it's the persistence of those symptoms, the degree of impairment that it causes in a person's life. That's really the key. All right, psychologist Dr. Craig Sawcheck. Uh, we're talking about post-traumatic stress disorder, and we all know that it happens uh, all too frequently in the military, but there's lots of other people who suffer from this condition. We'll talk more about that when we come back. And myth or matter of fact, men are more likely than women to experience PTSD. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to a special Veterans Day edition of Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about PTSD with Mayo Clinic psychologist Dr. Craig Sawcheck. So, Dr. Sawcheck, myth or matter of fact, men are more likely than women to experience PTSD. Is that a fact? Classic psychologist response, it depends on the group that you're looking at. Uh, <laughs> as, as we look at actually uh, the population, um, in general, women are more likely than men to develop uh, PTSD, a, a two-to-one ratio. Uh, but then you look at uh, certain types of traumatic experiences like the military, where disproportionately there are more men uh, in the military. That's changing over time. Uh, but in certain populations, you will see men outstripping uh, the women in terms of the frequency. When you talk about a whole group of 10 soldiers or 12 soldiers, in the theater that experience the same thing, and some of them come up with PTSD. Is genetics in there? What is it? Have you figured out what is it that accounts for that, that some don't and some do? 
Yeah, we we don't know, and I think that that's one of the tricky things about uh, genetics, as uh, we're seeing rapid advances uh, in uh, genetic underpinnings of a, of a variety of psychiatric disorders. We're not necessarily seeing as clear of a picture uh, with that with PTSD. Um, part of it is that PTSD is an event-related diagnosis. This is very different from most uh, psychiatric conditions that we work with, um, where this can just develop over time, whereas PTSD is actually tied into an event. So if, let's uh, broaden it out to more than military and you say, you know, a specific event, you know, a tornado crashes through your house or you are a child is sexually abused. Where does how do you figure out that that's what's happening with this individual? Right. So when when we look at um, features of the traumatic event um, seem to play a fairly big role in terms of determining how much does this go on to cause problems for particular individuals. So we start off at the what seems like the lowest step, um, which are natural disasters. These are things that happen to humans um, when people lose their homes, when their communities are, are wiped out traumatic events, you step up from there and then you get in more into what happens to people um, in terms of accidents, uh, motor vehicle accidents. Um, then the frequency steps up a little bit from there when we start to talk about, well, what do people do to each other? This is more the interpersonal violence, the abuse. And whenever there's um, abuse of any kind or interpersonal violence in, in which a weapon is involved, that increases the likelihood that this could lead to traumatic difficulties. And then we get into the higher step levels where um, military operations um, can lead to a higher frequency and then at the very highest step when there's mass genocide happening. So it's groups of people doing things to other people can lead to higher rates of PTSD. What is it that you see in, in your practice? We haven't had a natural disaster for quite some time, and the military uh, people are see, probably seen somewhere else. What do you see? Well, if we didn't have natural disaster here at Mayo Clinic, neither of us would have jobs uh, here. <laughs> so that uh, gave birth uh, to the clinic. And the um, bad tornado already went through 100 years ago, yes, right? Yes, that, that, that's I very hope true. It's not our turn again. <laughs> yes, I, I hope not, as anybody uh, would hope not. But definitely we, we see this all over the board and all the, the traumas that, that we just described. And, and as um, some of the descriptions that we've talked about, it can really come from anywhere. Sometimes it's a one-shot event. Um, it could be a natural disaster or a motor vehicle accident, something that just happened in a split second. Uh, for other people, it can be this longer-standing historical pattern of abuse, whether it be physical abuse, sexual abuse, or emotional abuse as well. In my practice, um, I actually do see um, some military folks, yeah. but more often than not, as you mentioned, uh, more of their treatment is being handled through the military, and there can still be stigma about actually engaging uh, treatment. But I do see the majority of my folks are more community-based, where it's more patterns of interpersonal trauma, violence, um, sexual, physical abuse, and neglect. I wonder if someone's listening to this and thinking, you know, my husband or my wife or my mom never did seem to get over fill in the blank. Right. Is is that something that you should talk about to bring up? Maybe this is something that someone is suffering from. I think so. Uh, once again, it depends upon the individual and their willingness you know, to mm -hmm. engage, and hence that can be the problem. There can be many reasons why people won't engage to try to improve their health care. Part of it is I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to bring it up anymore. It's in the past, and while it's in the past, it may still be continuing to cause them many problems. Um, for other people, it's the stigma. You know, They know that something is going on with them, and they are maybe very clear 
care about what that, what's going on, uh, but they don't want to engage in treatment for a variety of reasons, and stigma could be that. Another thing is, well, what types of treatments are available? Unfortunately, in, in the field of mental health, there are plenty of things that fly as being therapeutic, and many of them may not be evidence-based. So sometimes people have actually tried to reach out and get treatment and assistance with this earlier on, and unfortunately ended up in some kind of treatment or treatment program that really was not helpful. And then from there, it's like, why bother getting help? So how do you help help these people, and does your treatment differ depending on the inciting event? It, it it varies. If if we think of um, in the initial wake of a trauma, and let's take natural disasters is a really good example of that. Um, in the wake of the trauma, the last thing that you need is somebody like me. The last thing you need is a therapist showing up and saying, we need to, to work with you right now. We need to teach you about all the warning signs of, of trauma. There was um, this uh, movement um, earlier on called Critical Incident Stress Debriefing in which uh, mental health folks uh, would actually be deployed uh, into areas where uh, traumatic events had happened, making them available but not making them required. And I think that that was one of the problems that we learned from Critical Incident uh, Stress Debriefing, which inadvertently led to a sensitizing or an increase in trauma-related reactions rather than desensitizing. In the wake of, of trauma, what do people need? They need their natural antidepressants. They need family. They need friends. They need connection with their faith. Um, they need food. And they need all those things more than they need a mental health person on hmm. scene. Um, as people are getting about two to four weeks out from a traumatic experience and go on to experience uh, more difficulties, more disruptions in their mood, um, difficulties uh, regaining you know, a, a pace in, in their life, then that's where you may want to lean into it a little bit more. And sometimes education, um, and there's a great uh, website through the Anxiety and, and Depression Disorders Association of America, um, www.adaa.org. Um, that's a very good website to learn more about the nature of trauma and PTSD and people having difficulties recovering. Um, also, opening up the conversation with a primary care physician is a great first step as well. Yeah. So if you're still having, having trouble two to four weeks after their traumatic event, then that's the time to seek out mental health right. assistance. That's where we start to see people separating out. And, and this whole concept, uh, we have to you know, be reminded as we're talking about trauma, there, the, the vast majority of the outcome is resiliency. And there's m a lot of research also has been done in resiliency and what helps people bounce back uh, from difficult uh, traumatic experiences. We have about 20 seconds left. Is PTSD ever truly cured? In mental health, it's a, uh, uh, it's a dangerous thing to say that anything is cured. We help people improve their function. Psychotherapy can help very much in terms of uh, helping develop more of an internal locus of control or skills that they can learn uh, to better deal with these symptoms they're experiencing. And there's some pharmacotherapy that can also be helpful with some of these symptoms, as well as co-occurring problems like depression. Dr. Craig Sawchuk is a psychologist at Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us, bringing us up to date on PTSD. Appreciate the information. Great. Thank you for having me. Still to come on this special Veterans Day edition of Mayo Clinic Radio, artificial limbs have been around for centuries, but recently they've gone high-tech, giving wounded warriors functionality they never before dreamed of. And we'll hear from a wounded warrior who hasn't let the loss of a leg stop him from an active lifestyle, including skydiving. We'll hear from Army Staff Sergeant Dan Metzdorf. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Are you gluten-free? I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. I think we have to be careful about labeling 
one particular food, in this case gluten, as the cause of all evil. Mayo Clinic gastroenterologist Dr. Joseph Murray says only about 1% of Americans have celiac disease and should not eat gluten, the protein found in wheat, barley, and rye. But a 2011 study reported gluten also made some people who did not have celiac disease feel sick. It kind of set off a frenzy of interest in things that were not celiac disease that might respond to a gluten-free diet. The same researchers did a follow-up study and found gluten was not the culprit. Instead, it was FODMAPs. FODMAPs are these small molecules, are the common components of many foods, especially fruits, some vegetables. And fructose found in high fructose corn syrup and fructans found in wheat. So, if you think you have a sensitivity to gluten, Dr. Murray suggests you get tested to find out if it's celiac disease. If so, definitely go gluten-free. He also says some people with irritable bowel syndrome or autoimmune diseases say they feel better on gluten-free diets. But before you go gluten-free, talk to a dietitian. For more health news, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network. I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to this special Veterans Day edition of Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. Advances in battlefield medicine over the years have meant that more combatants survive their wounds. And because those wounds often involve the loss of an arm or a leg, those combat survivors need artificial limbs in order to return to active lives. Artificial limbs, or prosthetics, have been around since Greek and Roman times, but it's only been within the last few decades that development of very functional artificial limbs has taken a giant leap forward, and that's due largely to the computerized motion analysis and designs that use lightweight composite materials. Here to talk about advances in the development of artificial limbs is Dr. Kenton Kaufman. Dr. Kaufman is a biomechanical engineer who designs artificial limbs at Mayo Clinic. Welcome to the program, Dr. Kaufman. Thank you, Tracy. It's a, a gift, I suppose, almost to some of these soldiers who are injured in battle and lose an arm or a leg. Yes, it is. And uh, let's go back to when the government first started to provide artificial legs uh, to uh, service veterans, and that was during the Civil War. The uh, first amputee of the Civil War was J.E. Hanger, James Edward Hanger, and uh, he was an engineer by training. And so... After he got injured, he was the first person who lost his leg in the Civil War. Fortunately for him, that we didn't have antiseptic techniques at that time. So he survived, and he decided he was going to build a limb. And it, he was an above-knee amputee, and the limb that he built did so well that it was the first time that the government actually said, we're going to pay for artificial limbs for veterans. And I would imagine that, of course, it's come a long way since the Civil War prosthetic leg, but even in the last 20 years, what has changed in prosthetics? In the last 20 years, the real advances have been in the use of microprocessors for the prosthetics. Uh, so now we have computers in the leg that makes decisions uh, 50, 60 times a second of what the, leg, the limb should be doing so that the person can walk in a natural manner. How does a computer know what a direction or what, how a person wants to use their leg? How does a computer know that? Well, there are sensors in the, uh, in the limb to sense the, uh, the motion of the limb, to sense the forces that are being generated in the limb, and then the computer algorithms that use that information to make adjustments to the uh, stiffness of the limb. There are uh, prosthetics ankles that have computers in them. There are prosthetic knees that have computers in them. 
and the uh, first advance was made in the prosthetic knees. The computer senses uh, basically what phase of gait the individual is in and then makes an adjustment to the stiffness of the, of the knee so that the person can walk in a natural fashion. So you want the knee to be stiff when you're standing on it, but you want it to be flexible so the knee bends when you swing the leg forward. So that's what I have in my notes here is motion analysis. That's what that is? Well, motion analysis is actually a study of how people move. We apply those technologies uh, to design limbs. And uh, the real motion analysis started after World War II when uh, Dr. Vern Inman and colleagues realized that there were no good limbs at that time for the amputees, the veterans. And so uh, he started a group that actually did some of the pioneering work in motion analysis the findings that they had after World War II are still true today in terms of how humans move. Tell us about how designing limbs for combat survivors, how that translates over to the general population. Well, the real advances in prosthetic care actually come after a war because there's an interest in uh, providing care for our veterans. And uh, so we can point to uh, Civil War, we can point to World War One. we can point to World War Two in Vietnam. We can see significant advances being made at those times, and that's true with the current uh, global war on terror. Such, such as? What well, happened after Vietnam, for instance? Vietnam uh, brought us the, uh, the Seattle foot, and so it was a redesign of, of the prosthetic foot that had been designed in World War II. Uh, now we have the microprocessor-controlled prostheses, to advance uh, the technology uh, a step further, so to speak. So in that instance, there is something good that comes out of war for patients who weren't weren't even in the military. That's correct. So this applies to uh, both the military veterans as well as the civilians. What about arms and hands? Has that technology come along too? There's been some advances in in arms and hands, but not as much as uh, lower extremity. It's really impossible for a person to walk if they don't have a limb. But if, they have, if they're missing, an, if they have an amputation of the upper extremity, uh, they can use that as a helper and use the other hand. So there's not as many uh, advances that's been made in hands as it has been in, in legs. Um, and there's not as many amputations in the upper extremity as there are in the lower extremity. Where is the future of prosthetic limbs going? What's up next? If, we've already had a, if you already have a computer in your knee or your ankle, what can be improved? Well, the uh, microprocessor-controlled prostheses right now are uh, passive devices, so they change the stiffness of the knee, but they don't provide any energy to the gait. And so there's work being done on devices that actually provide energy when you walk, so you can walk in a more natural fashion. And beyond that, there is uh, work being done at a couple of centers in the United States to use the electrical activity from the muscle to control the prosthesis. And how long does an artificial limb last? And does an arm last longer than a leg, or is there? can you break it down like that? Well, the warranty is for three years, mm-hmm. and um, so you'll have to ask Sergeant Metzdorf about <laughs> that. But uh, I think it depends on how hard they uh, use the device as to how long it's going to last. Well, we've been talking about advances in the design and development of artificial limbs with Dr. Kenton Kaufman. He is a biomechanical engineer and artificial limb specialist at Mayo Clinic. And speaking of that special soldier, Staff Sergeant Dan Metzdorf, we'll talk with him when we come back. Thanks for being here, Dr. Kaufman. Thank you, Tracy. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll hear firsthand from Staff Sergeant Metzdorf about his artificial leg and how he lost his leg in the Iraq War. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Welcome back to this special Veterans Day edition of Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. Army Staff Sergeant Dan Metzdorf, a member of the 82nd Airborne, was just 10 days into his deployment in Iraq when he was nearly killed by a roadside bomb while on patrol about 30 miles south of Baghdad. The explosion killed three soldiers who were with Metzdorf and damaged his right leg so badly that it had to be amputated. Following his injuries, Metzdorf underwent more than two dozen surgeries and received an artificial leg. He has said that his artificial leg is as much a part of him as the leg that he lost in combat. Among other things, since his Iraq War service, he's been a member of the Army's elite Golden Knight Parachute Team. He has also competed as a cyclist in the New York City Marathon. Dan Metzdorf, welcome to the program. It's great. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's a privilege, actually, to meet you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. Tell me about being here. I mean, let's go all the way back. Okay, you said there's sure. 10 kids in your family oh, and almost yes. everybody's in the service. Oh, it, it has been um, one, grown up as number six out of 10. It's never boring. Awesome family, awesome support system. And um, joining the Army was a dream of mine since I was six years old. I was that kid that was running around with dirt on his face because I didn't have camouflage paint. And I, I wanted my dad to buy me a gun at seven. And he, I think he gave me a plastic canteen, I think. And uh, I'm sorry. I finally got my dream. I got to join the Army. And and with that, there's that inherent risk because I wanted to do everything. I wanted to go to the next level. Every job I had, I said, hey, is there something harder I could do? Because let's do that. <laughs> let's, and it sounds like more fun. And so, uh, so being a paratrooper, you're there doing the job every day. I was part of the largest airborne unit in the world, the only airborne unit of its kind that can deploy 18 hours or less to any place on the Earth's surface. And so if you're thinking about 15,000 paratroopers that are trained to do that every day, and we love doing it. And it, it gave you such a sense of pride and almost a sense of being invincible. And we're highly trained and highly skilled to do everything, but then you've got to factor in the enemy. Sometimes they get lucky. So I came home January 27, 2004. I was injured and. In, uh um, I got shipped back and got to Walter Reed. And um, I know that there's probably some ideas out there or rumors, but Walter Reed Army Medical Center is where miracles happen. Day in and day out, those professionals did everything they could to keep us alive, to keep us going, and keep us living life. And all the way down to the prosthetist, you, you're sitting there and you basically get told, hey, you only have one mm-hmm. leg now, mm-hmm. and now you've got to learn to walk again, run again, jump out of planes again, maybe, mm-hmm. or maybe just live a normal life. And and so when you look at it like that, it's daunting task. It, it really works on all of your senses. I've got to live a normal life with this this metal contraption strapped to me all day long. I've got to learn how to work it. But when you have a team like Dennis Clark and and all of his guys, you've got you've got someone that basically just gives you a big bear hug every day and says, hey, we're going to get through this. And you mentioned Dennis Clark. We should say um, we are presently in the Lim Lab studio here in Rochester, Minnesota, and Dennis Clark is one of the guys who put Lim Lab together. Yes. And um, tell me what Lim Lab has done for you. But let maybe let's go back a little bit and okay. talk about how in the last 11 years your artificial legs have changed. How many have you had over that time? 
Um, I, I've, I've tried not to have as many, but um, when you try to go back to your job and start jumping out of planes from over two miles above the Earth's surface, you're going to break a couple. Because you, you didn't want to leave the Army. You went no, back to work. I n- n- no, I was the first above the knee amputee to stay on active duty, but that's a win for everyone. That's a win for the Army. That's a win for my doctors, for my prosthetists. That's not me. I was just I, – I was so proud to just be a part of it, and it was – a lot of fun, mm-hmm. a lot of fun. But using different prosthetics, um, a lot of it was that practical education um, that I, I feel is uh, a, a need that you have to have from day one. you got to know that practical, what does this do and how can I use it to its fullest ability? Not give me something and we'll just try to work around it. And from, from day one, I had a microprocessor C-leg. And I didn't know how to use all of it. I just knew that I was um, I had more ability than the knee had. It was a very safe knee, and it was a very easy, very comfortable knee to learn how to walk again. But I needed to take that a step further. I was going to stay on active duty. I was going to do everything I used to do. So I needed that 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 rugged, that that <laughs> bad to the bone <laughs> knee. And and they gave it to me. And and it was I probably went through three or four knees um, in the beginning just because of of how much uh, pressure and, and, and just sure. uh, how active I was on the knees. And and then we started talking directly to these prosthetic manufacturers and these knee companies, and it was awesome to hear how how gracious they were just to hear from us, just that practical, like, yeah, we, we will make you something like that. It's not like, oh, how much is it going to cost or who are we going to bill? They wanted to step up to the plate. They wanted to make these knees that were indestructible. They wanted to make these knees and these feet and, and these arms and everything that were soldier-proof. And <laughs> let me tell you what, that's hard to do. Well, okay. and not only soldier-proof, but then they want to do that because then for just the general population, anybody, you know, I'm a farm kid, and I sure know a lot of farmers who exactly. need prosthetics. So you're helping a lot of people with the technology that's being pushed, as Dr. Kaufman said, on the backside of these wars are helping the general population. Um, well, I see it as um, you basically just released a very active population into the amputee world. And it has to have both sides. You've got to have the patient's need, but you also have to have that group of engineers, those thinkers, those doctors like Dr. Kaufman, to really put the screws to these manufacturers and say, we need something better. We need something faster. We need something smarter. And they all stepped up to the plate. And it was it was so nice to see everyone working towards that common goal of, hey, these prosthetics can be better. They can be smarter. They can be more indestructible. And that's where we're at now. You said, and I read in the intro, that this leg that you have or these versions of new leg that you have had are as much of a part of you as the leg that you lost. Um, I, I think that's more psychological at first mm-hmm. until you really learn how to use it because you can't dwell on the past. You've got to look at, hey, this is where I'm at now. Yes, I lost my leg, and, and it was a horrific time. And it, I think it boils down to this one point. I called my father when I was injured, and I was talking on this tiniest cell phone known to man, I think, and I was, I was laying in this hospital bed in Germany, and it was the first time I got to talk to him, and I was like, Dad, I lost my leg, you know, and he's like, all right, all right, I'm going to get on a plane and go to the hospital and see you. And I started... Um, I started crying. I was breaking mm-hmm. down. I was like, I'm not going to be able to do my job anymore. 
People are going to look at me different. I'm not going to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because you lost part of you? Yeah. Is that what you thought it, was? It, exactly. And 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 that's, so my father's words, I use them all the time. He's like, hey, um, we love you very much. Why don't you find that man I raised and have him call me back? And so I sat in that oh hospital my. bed for 29 minutes. And, and I sat there, watched the clock go around, and picked up the phone. I was like, hey, Pops, how are you? He's like, hey, you doing pretty good? I'm like, oh, the food's not very good. But uh, he said, well, hey, boy, I'm going to meet you in the hospital, and we're going to start from right there. And if you have a starting point, if you have that date where you're like, well, I am alive. Mm-hmm. And so you got to be like, you know, i got to grab onto something. And sometimes it's something so small. And when I, I talk to soldiers and we're talking about different issues and different invisible wounds from combat like PTSD and things like that, you're like sometimes it's something really small, but grab onto it. Grab onto it and make sure that when you conquer something, that it's your win. And it's my win when I say, hey, this leg is my leg. This is what I have now, and this is mine. And and if I can conquer it, well, then I can use that positive energy of that's a win for me. And some mornings of when you wake up and you're amputee and you wake up and it's and so you see that leg plugged in and yeah. it's. It's leaning up against the wall, and you put it on, and it's, it takes everything you got to just, just kind of put a smile on your face because it's hard work, and it's hard work, but you can win every day. You can be that champion every day. The next question I was going to have is what advice do you have for people who are just starting out with their very first artificial limb, and I think you've already answered it. Well, it's, it's, I had so many great people that were at my bedside that shared their stories with me, um, just it, it, it was a, a journey that was not easy at all. Um, I, I have, I'm, I'm so very lucky, and I, I have so much love around me, and it, and it really comes down to that. It really comes down to you've got to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I love you, like, and you've got to love yourself again. And instead of blaming yourself or feeling sorry for yourself or saying, I can't do it, you really got to just stop and be like, let's love what I got. And let's love this life. And let's start living it again. Let's not sit in the corner. Let's live life again. Um, my favorite thing about you before I even met you was the website that you set up because that was part of the get Thank to you. know Dan Metzdorf. <laughs> Thank you So tell much. me about a live day because I'm in love with it. I love well, it. All right. So a live day started out and um, there's a, a few folks out there that are like, oh, Dan came up with this. Well, I didn't come up with this. <laughs> I, I, I definitely did not. We started talking one day in the hospital about about feeling alive and about, hey, I'm glad I'm here. Well, I guess you're glad you're alive, you know. And we're like, you know, like when I got blown up that day and I lost my soldiers, I need to grab on to that I'm alive. And so we started celebrating people's alive dates and, 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 and having little parties in the hospital. Mm-hmm. and But I think it was the doctors that really pushed it forward and that really was like, Hey, uh, now we got another guy coming in. You know, I know we got another gal coming in. I know we got some comrades of yours coming in. And uh, you guys really need to put that bug in their ear. And the doctors would use us as their their positive motivation. Sometimes they use us against us sometimes. But they'd be like, <laughs> talk to them about what they have. We'll fix what they don't have. But let's talk to them about let's live in life. Like, really get out there and cherish it. And, and yes, of course, remember... You know, everything that happened, 
and but take away all that strength from it and really and just use it for tomorrow. And that website address is labday.com. All right. We've been talking with Army Staff Sergeant Dan Metzdorf about his personal experience with adapting to life with an artificial leg and and a live day. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. That's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Dietman, our social media editor Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.